Now, if you brought your Bibles, you can turn to John in chapter 11. Our sermon text this morning begins in verse 45 and runs through verse 54. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. I didn't look to see what page number that was, but John's gospel is in the New Testament, so you'll be looking towards the end of the Bible if you're looking for it. John chapter, 10, chapter 11, sorry, verses 45 through 53. Hear then, church, the word of the Lord. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and in seeing what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do now ask you as we turn to your word, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us through it, by your word and by the work of your spirit in us. We pray that you would change us, you would grow us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, that you would unite us together in one body, having faith in him, being united by your spirit. There would be an increase in our lives of not only the fruits of the Spirit, but also in the body of this church. There would be an increase of joy and unity and harmony together as we seek to follow you in all that you call us to do. And this we pray in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Well, we resume our studies this morning in the book of John. We began that all the way back in the fall of 2021. So that might be hard to believe, but we are actually going on more than, uh, we're, we've passed the year mark for our series in John. So we've been in John for a while. Um, but in any case, uh, we took a break from John for our Advent series. So it's, we've had this long month or so that we have not been in John. So I wanna start this morning by giving us a short summary of the Gospel of John and where it is that we left off. So the Gospel of John, uh, I think I, I called it this at the beginning of our series as we were talking about the gospel of John in the intro. I called it an evangelical, or sorry, an evangelistic gospel. Um, and that's how I think of it. I think it's right to think of the gospel of John as an evangelistic gospel. And what I'm, the reason why I call it that is because John writes his gospel in order to compel his readers to faith in Jesus. There's a very much of um, an evangelist, he writes as an evangelist, He's, he's telling the story of Jesus, but he's telling the story of Jesus as an eyewitness in a compelling way. He's relating the things about Jesus that he did, the miraculous signs he did, and um, the things that Jesus said in order that his readers would come to faith in Christ. So he says at the end of, of uh, his gospel or towards the end in chapter 20, verses 31, that he records all of these signs. He's, the, he says, there are many things that I... I else that I could have recorded about Jesus. There are so many things I could have written about, but these I wrote about so that you might believe, oh reader, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. 
So the first half of John's gospel, the whole first half of John's gospel is focused primarily on these signs that Jesus performed or miracles. We might call them miracles, but John calls them signs because they were signs that testified to his identity as the son of God, as the eternal son of God. And then along with those signs, he records the claims that Jesus makes about himself, claims to deity, claims to being the Son of God, claims to being the light of the world, claims to being the Savior, claims to being the Messiah. So John records seven signs in the first half of his book. And along with those seven signs, he also records seven I am statements that Jesus makes. Many of us are familiar with those statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So he records, along with the seven signs, seven I am statements of Jesus, which tell the story of who Jesus is and what he had come to do. So now we've come in our series, we've come to the end of part one of John. Some call it the the first book of John and the second book of John, which kind of is, is confusing because we think of the gospel as one book, but we'll call it part one and part two. We've come to the end of part one where John's focus is primarily on the signs of Jesus. And we're beginning to enter into the part two where John's focus turns from those miraculous signs and claims of Jesus to relating to us the glory of Christ as it is displayed in his humble submission to his father and his willing self-sacrifice, his his uh, willingly giving himself up on the cross. But we haven't, we haven't quite gotten to chapter, or part two, because chapter 12 is where that focus, in sh- that shift in focus begins. And we left off in chapter 11. Now chapter 11 records for us the story, what I didn't read in chapter 11, is the story of Lazarus. Many of you, most of you were here when we went through it. The story of Jesus coming to his friend Lazarus' home after Lazarus had passed away, after Lazarus had died. And he comes to Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and both of them say to him, if Lord, if you had been here, my father or my brother wouldn't have died. And they had, they had a certain amount of faith in Jesus, but they didn't realize that Jesus had the power of life itself. And so Jesus says, and this is the verse that we just read, our memory verse, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And to demonstrate that he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus raises Lazarus up from the dead. And so here we come to the end of that chapter and we're told what comes of that. What is the result of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Of course, Lazarus is raised and he comes back to life. But what happens after that? So this this is the last miracle John records. uh, And as we see in our text for this morning, it is actually the miracle that results in decisive action from the religious establishment to have Jesus arrested, condemned to death. So the trial, they're they're planning now. The trial is simply a formality because the verdict and the sentence have already been decided by them. So we come back to John to see how the story of Lazarus ends. Now, we might think of the story of Lazarus ending with, well, it's a happy ending, right? It ends with Lazarus coming back from the dead. He, He comes back to life because Jesus speaks the word, Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. But the story of Lazarus actually doesn't end there. It ends with the decision of this Jewish council that Jesus, this man who claims to be the son of God and who raises the dead, who does miraculous things like making the blind see, the lame walk, and the dead rise, their decision that he must be put to death. He raised a man to life and, and word gets out 
that Jesus did this miraculous sign and the authorities say, nope, he's gone too far. That's enough. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. He's got to go. We need to put him to death. Well, then, having looked at the miracle itself already, we're going to look at the response this morning. And it actually begins on a positive note. So first, um, we're going to see three responses. First, the response of, of the people who are there. We might call them the common people, right? And then the Jewish people. And then the response of the council. And then finally, the response of the high priest. But it starts out on a positive note because look at verse 45. We're told that many Jews believed in Jesus because of this miracle. Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there was a number of people, there were a number of Jews that were with Mary when she was mourning for the loss of her brother. And then Jesus came and Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. And they were there and they saw it. And we're told here that many of those who were there and saw it, they believed in Jesus as a result of seeing the miracle. Now that's not surprising, is it? You can imagine, I, 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 I can imagine being there. And if I, had, if I witnessed Jesus raising a man up from the dead, a man who had been dead for four days, I think it would have a profound impact on me. It would have a profound impact on you, wouldn't it? So this is incredible evidence, we would say, that this man is who he is claiming to be. Look, he must be the Son of God. Who else has the power of life itself in his hands? Who else can raise the dead to life? So it isn't surprising that many Jews believed in Jesus because of this. We're told in chapter 12 that many more were believing in Jesus because of this miracle, which is why the chief priests make plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because those who witnessed it and those who saw it went out spreading the word. This is what happened to Lazarus. And guess what? If people wanted to verify that this is really what happened, all they had to do is go to Lazarus. All they had to do is go to his sisters and say, hey, did this really happen? And so the word gets out. And the good news is because of the sign, many of the Jews begin, begin to or believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But the sad news is there were some who witnessed this miracle and still did not believe. If you look at verse 45 and 46 closely, you'll notice that Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, John makes a comparison here. Some of the witnesses, John says, uh, some of the witnesses of this miracle, some who were with Mary believed, but, there's a but there, but some went straight to the Pharisees in order to tell them what Jesus had done. He's doing those miracles again. More people are following after him. You guys got to do something about this. Now, the way the sentence is structured clues us into the fact that the ones who went to the Pharisees were not a part of those who believed. They witnessed Jesus raising the man from the dead, and yet they remained opposed to Jesus. Their response was to notify the authorities, to tattletale, to tell the authorities that Jesus was out there performing more miraculous signs again. And we've seen this all throughout John, haven't we? There's, there's constantly a division in John, between those who believe and those who not only don't believe, but they reject Christ. They are opposed to him. His miracles and his claims, they, they had a polarizing effect on people, you see. There was no middle ground. And there is no middle ground, even today. Either he is the son sent from the father, or he's a troublemaker. He's a false teacher. He's a blasphemer. Men and women then and men and women today 
when they really face, when they really face the Jesus of Scripture, they will either be drawn in or repelled out. Why? Because he's a polarizing force. And why is he a polarizing force? Because he isn't just who people want him to be. He isn't just who we want him to be. He isn't just who people expected the Messiah would be like. He is the Son of God. He's the only way to the Father. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the one and only Savior of man. So it was and it is that either he is embraced and he's received in faith or he's rejected and he's opposed in unbelief. Indifference with Jesus is not an option. There's no such thing as neutrality. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so John tells us we believe on him and we have come to the truth and we have come to life. But if we don't believe in him, then we remain in darkness and we're under the wrath of God. Now that might sound harsh to our modern ears, but it is exactly what the gospel of John proves to us time and time again. So then in verse, verses 45 and 46, we find that in response to this miracle, the people were divided as they have been throughout the gospel of John. But what about the religious leaders? What is their response when they hear of what Jesus has done? Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The council that John refers to here was known as the Sanhedrin. That was a governing body that was made up of two parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were theological conservatives. They were, those who, they were men who were very zealous for the law of God and teaching the law and adherence to the law. They believed that God spoke through his word and that it was all true and that God's people to, were, were to be meticulous in their obedience to it, right? And the Pharisees, they disliked the Romans. They were opposed to the Romans. They didn't like the Romans, yet they weren't revolutionaries and they were against any sort of uprising and revolution. They didn't think the way to their freedom was going to be through violent force. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were what we might call the theological liberals. They were essentially anti-supernaturalists, which is crazy when you think about it, because all of the chief priests were Sadducees. They went through all the rituals and they didn't even believe half the stuff that they did. It was all tradition. It's actually a lot like liberal churches today who go through all the motions. They'll do the Lord's Supper. They'll, they'll read God's word, but they're anti-supernaturalists. They don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they say it doesn't really matter because there's still value in these traditions. That's what the Sadducees were like. They were anti-supernaturalists. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't, they didn't believe that there would be a final resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. And also, unlike the Pharisees, they had a, um, a very positive view towards Rome. They, they had an agreeable disposition towards Rome. They were at peace with Rome. Why? Because they actually from, benefited from Rome being where Rome was. They had a really good deal going on. And so, they had a positive attitude towards Rome. 
Now, I, I mentioned the chief priests were all Sadducees. The Pharisees were mostly scribes and teachers of the law. I say all this to help you see that there were significant differences among these men who made up this council. I believe it was 71 men who made up this council. It was a, like I said, it was a governing body. It was a legislative body and also, a, also we could call it judiciary. They, they had the power of making certain judgments. So there was, there was political power here. And these two parties made up this council, but they were probably farther apart. These parties were probably farther apart than your average Republican and Democrat is today. They had significantly different views on things. And yet they constituted this, this, this council and had significant authority over the Jude Jews in Judea. And, and what happens is in the end, the old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is what plays out in this council's decision to put Jesus to death. Now, John doesn't outright tell us this, but evidently everyone in the council did not all agree on what to do with Jesus. And that's implied in the way the high priest scolds the council saying, you know nothing at all. Translated in modern terms, idiots, what are you thinking? Don't you know that it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish? And who is he scolding? Well, apparently he's scolding the people who weren't in favor of putting Jesus to death. Apparently when he says that with the condescension in his voice, do you know nothing at all? That there are some who are saying we shouldn't put this man to death. So there's this division within the Sanhedrin on what to do with Jesus. It seems from chapter 12 that the division was likely within the Pharisee party because when Jesus rides into Jerusalem for Passover and the crowd receives him with shouts of joy, we're told in verse 19 that the Pharisees say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What's happening there? Well, again, the implication is that some within the group of the Pharisees are not in favor of putting Jesus to death. And others are saying to those, do you see now? Do you see now why the only solution before us is to arrest him and have him condemned to death? Do you see how everyone's going after him? Do you want to keep doing what we're doing, doing nothing? And so there's this division. Now, John doesn't tell us who those Pharisees are who are opposed to putting Jesus to death. Perhaps some of them, like Nicodemus, were men who were seriously, they, their conscience was nagging them. They wondered about Jesus. They were really curious about Jesus. They knew in their heart of hearts that Jesus was sent from God. And they would come to faith in him. Maybe they had already come to faith in him, or, or later they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know by the end of the gospel that Nicodemus certainly did. Perhaps some of them didn't believe in Jesus, but they also didn't think it was lawful to kill him. But in any case, we're told in verse 53, after the high priest's words, after Caiaphas says what he says, the Sanhedrin makes the decision to put Jesus to death. So the majority of the religious leaders in Israel that day set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, as Psalm 2 tells us will happen. 
Now, it's a sad thing when you think about it. These men who were meant to be the spiritual leaders of God's people refused to believe in God's Son even after Jesus raises a man back from the dead. They show us the irrationality of unbelief. What greater evidence did these men need? They had heard from eyewitnesses that Lazarus was raised at the simple command of our Savior, Lazarus, come out. And they heard the story, and he came out alive. And their reaction and their response to that was, we must put a stop to this. Their dilemma was, John tells us, that Jesus was performing so many powerful signs and that because of this, people were believing in him. And it wasn't that he was doing harmful or evil things, but that he was doing incredible things. He was doing, we might call them, wonderful things. They would have done well to recognize the sort of signs that he was performing. Well, what sort of signs is he performing? What is he going around Israel doing? What is he doing in Judea? He's giving sight to the blind. He's cleansing lepers. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. It's absolutely irrational when you think about it. Because the contention they had with Jesus should have served to win them over to him. They ought to have heard themselves saying, this man performed so many miraculous signs and then stopped right there. Stop. Wait, what's the problem? This man performs so many signs. Yes, what is the problem here? How is it that this man is doing such wonderful things? Could this be? Could this be a work of God? Could we, if we oppose this man, actually be opposing God himself? And sadly, the one who leads the charge and the decision to put Jesus to death is the one who held the most prominent position in the council, the leader, the speaker, the chairman of the council, the high priest himself, Caiaphas. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, the words of Caiaphas to the council are both an expression of his foolish reasoning and a revelation of God's divine intention for his son to die on behalf of his people. John tells us that in the following verses, verses 50, 50 through 52. So I want to look at each of those in, in turn. First, his words and as an expression of foolish reasoning, of of. of, of Foolish, man-centered, prideful reasoning. Caiaphas says, it is better for us that one man, Jesus, die than for the whole nation to perish. And most certainly when he spoke of the nation perishing, he was not speaking on spiritual terms or he was not meaning to speak on spiritual terms. He was speaking on political terms. Remember what was said right before his speech they said, if we let Jesus go on doing what he's doing, then everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away our place, possibly speaking of the temple and our nation. So they were worried that messianic fever would sweep through Judea because of Jesus and cause problems with Rome and then result in them losing their positions of power and bring destruction upon 
their people. And so Caiaphas's reasoning is this, not that Jesus had committed a crime that was worthy of death, but that it would be better to put him to death, innocent or not, than it would be to risk the loss of their positions of power, the lucrative business of the temple, and the relative peace they had with Rome. In the old King James Version, his words are translated, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Now that word expedient reveals the folly of Caiaphas's reasoning. He was not concerned with what was righteous before God, which he should have been as the high priest, but he was concerned with what was expedient. In other words, what was practical, what was profitable for them, what would bring about presumably the greatest good for the right people. So you see, Caiaphas was being a pragmatist. And his pragmatic reasoning was fueled by arrogance. It was fueled by pride because, first of all, he presented the situation as if he knew there were only two possible outcomes to their situation. Either they leave Jesus be and all that is dear to them is lost, or they kill Jesus and they keep their place and their nation is saved. He didn't know what would happen, really. But he imagined and he spoke as if he knew the future, as if he did. And furthermore, his reasoning assumed that the right thing to do was the thing which would produce the desired effect. His estimation of the consequences of their action was the sole determination of that action being right or wrong. So let me put it this way. If putting Jesus to death meant that the nation would be saved, then it must be the right thing to do. That's the folly of pragmatism. First, pragmatism is very often fueled by pride or hubris. Pragmatism is fueled by pride by thinking that we can know for certain things that are yet to be known to us. And it is therefore an attempt to determine outcomes, the future, based on our prideful assumption and estimations of what will get us there. And the height of the folly of pragmatism is that it assigns moral values to actions based upon the estimated or imagined effects of those actions. So what is right or what ought to be done is not based upon the standard of God's revelation to man, God's standard, but actually upon our calculations of the effects of our actions. If, well, some of you are trying to follow me here. I realize this is, let me put it this way. If we do this, then that will be the result. That result is good, therefore doing this is good. Are you following me? If we do this, then that will be the result. That is good, therefore doing this is good. Do you see, are you, you, the problem isn't, the problem with pragmatism isn't that it con is concerned with what's practical. 
There's nothing wrong with being concerned. It's, there's nothing wrong with asking the question, what works? Practicality isn't wrong in and of itself. It's bad. It's bad. It becomes pragmatism when the only question we ask is what works. And when our answers to that question become the driving force of our decision. What works? That's the primary question. I know in my pride what's going to work. And therefore, doing that thing must be right because I've determined that it will work. So sort of an ends justifies the means, or the means justifies the ends kind of deal. Now, we might not think this is much of an issue today, but it actually is. And I want to help us to see a few ways that pragmatism works in our thinking. So let me give you a couple examples. First, Christians today are tempted to be pragmatists when it comes to our witness for Christ. We are, we are tempted to this foolish reasoning, this foolish philosophy when it comes to our witness for Christ. We want to be winsome, okay? And just like wanting to be practical, wanting to be winsome isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when it is our principal concern, when winsomeness is our principal concern, then we fall into pragmatism. Now you say, why? Why is that? Well, because right and wrong action become determined by what effect we estimate our action will have on people. Faithfulness then to God's word ends up playing second fiddle to, faithfulness to God's word plays second fiddle to this. Will this action, will this action, will this speech, will this silence, Whatever it is, will this action cause the unbeliever to think more or less of me as a Christian? Will they think more or less of Christ if I say this or if I do this? Will it cause them to be more or less open to the gospel and Christianity? So should I use their preferred pronouns? Should I attend that celebration? Should I laugh at that joke? Should I adopt that kind of speech? Should I use those words? Those phrases? And listen, listen, I want to be very clear. You may be altruistic at heart. In other words, you may be genuinely concerned for their good and how you will imagine that they will respond to the thing that you're doing or not doing. But even still, what is the standard? What's the principal concern? Is it your estimation of what will work best for them coming to Christ? Or is it faithfulness to the word of God? And what God has said, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. Now another way that pragmatism has entered into the church is seen in the way churches conduct Sunday morning worship. What ought we to do on Sunday morning when we gather for worship? Well, the pragmatic approach is to start with the question, what can we do that will bring more people in, get more people to raise their hands for Christ, get more people to give, get more people to serve? And so the driving factor of how the church conducts worship, instead of faithfulness to God's word, becomes what do we think will work? Do you see the pride? 
Our first question ought to be, what does God call us to do when we gather for worship? What does God say worship is about and for? Just as easily as it has come into, and it can come into the church, so pragmatism comes into our homes. It's so easy for us to fall for the pragmatic approach in our homes. What works? That becomes the driving force. That becomes the principal question. So the husband says, it works best in our home when I let my wife make the hard decisions for our family. It's just, don't want to disrupt the peace. That wouldn't work well. The parents say, well, we read a book that told us disciplining our kids for disobedience has a profoundly negative effect on their psychology, especially spanking. And so we've adopted a more positive approach because we believe it works best. You see what it is? It's all pragmatism. Now, now none of these examples might be as extreme as Caiaphas advocating for the decision to put Jesus to death but they are the workings of the same philosophy that actually puts man in the place of God. The imagined effect of their plan to put Jesus to death could not justify the action of murdering the righteous Son of God. And so let us be weary, friends, of this dangerous philosophy of pragmatism in our church, in our homes, and in our lives. That then is the foolish reasoning of Caiaphas, but what about the revelation of God in his words? Well, look at verse 51. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, this is the most wonderful and the most mysterious part of our story today. That while Caiaphas spoke with a certain ill intention toward Christ, God had his own intention. Caiaphas had his intended meaning, and yet he didn't even know that by God's sovereign plan, he was speaking prophetically at that moment of Jesus dying for his people. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus' death was the result of a conspiracy? Some of you are into those, right? You love reading on, the, on conspiracies. You're all about what happened to JFK. Oh, did you hear the latest thing on JFK? Oh my goodness. Did you hear that thing Tucker Carlson said or whoever it was? It really was a conspiracy. Oh my goodness. Guess what? The death of Christ actually was a conspiracy. Men in high places of power conspired against him. They came up with a plan for how they would arrest him and how they would bring charges against him and how they would put him before the Romans and the Roman authorities and what they would need to say in order to get the Roman authorities to put him to death. It was all a grand conspiracy. It was the most sinister conspiracy that was ever contrived by man. And yet, and this is an encouraging thought, yet... It was all according to the great and marvelous plan of Almighty God that his son would die in order to gather into one children of God, not just from Israel, but from all the nations. How ironic then it is that what Caiaphas says in rebellion against God and his anointed 
was unbeknownst to him the gospel truth that would soon be proclaimed in Jerusalem, in Judea, in all the uttermost parts of the earth. The Son of God, the Christ, he has come. He's the Savior of the world. He laid down his life for his bride, and God has determined that one man should die for the sake of the many that it would be one righteous man in the place of scores and scores and scores of unrighteous men and women from across the globe who would place their hope and their trust in him and they would be forgiven and they would be redeemed and they would be brought into the one family of God. So what man meant for evil, God planned for good. What man spoke with evil intent, God meant for glorious good. What the high priest said in unbelief, God ordained for the revelation of his merciful and gracious will to bring us to salvation through the death of his perfect son. He came to his own, John said at the beginning. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own rulers and authorities of his own people did not receive him. They plotted against him. But to all who did receive him, John says, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for this good and great news. We thank you for the gospel spoken through Caiaphas, just as you spoke through the ass of Balaam. We thank you, Lord, that you are so marvelous and sovereign that you can take men and their evil intentions and you can turn those evil intentions into the greatest good, the salvation of the world through your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you this morning and we thank you for it. And it's in his name that we pray. And amen.